0: All right, this morning we are in a week, uh, in week two of a series that we're calling Broken Together. I mean, in this series, we are looking at places of brokenness, places of hurt and pain and struggle that tend to isolate us, tend to make us feel by ourselves and alone, especially in the church. And we're talking about this because we believe that the Bible says that community is supposed to be a place. Of comfort and help and healing and so in this series we are saying what it would look like for us to be more of that kind of church more that kind of community where people can come and be honest and vulnerable and feel safe to let others into the brokenness that they're carrying. Last week we talked about depression and Pastor Paul challenged us in a beautiful way to bear one another's burdens He called us to reject the stigma that surrounds depression often in churches. He called us to remain with people as they walk on that journey and he reminded us to remind them of God's goodness and promises. It was a week where I believe some people felt the freedom to come out of the shadows and be more fully known in our midst and that is a good thing. This week we're talking about grief and loss and mourning. And we're talking about this because this is an area of brokenness where people often feel alone, even in the church. They come to church and everyone seems happy and confident and close to God and ready to sing songs of praise and joy, but they aren't. They're hurting and they're struggling and they are doubting and lamenting and fighting for maybe just a scrap of comfort. And so today I want to talk about what it means to be a healthy and safe community for people who find themselves in this place, this place of grief and loss and mourning. And our text this morning is going to be one of the most, I think, profound books in the entire Bible, this little book in the Old Testament called Job. And so if you have a Bible, turn there. If you need to use one of the Bibles in the pew rack, you can do that, or this morning, I invite you to also feel free to just follow along on the screens. We're gonna be kind of surveying through this wonderful book, Job. It's the story of a guy named Job uh, who experiences loss loss and grief and pain and mourning on a torrential level. But before tragedy hits Job's life, the story begins like this. This is Job chapter 1, verse 1. So we'll start. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons. Remember that from the book of Ruth, how seven sons was like the sign of ultimate blessing. I can't only imagine having seven sons, and there's nothing blessed about that in my mind. But in the Bible, that's what it is. He had seven sons and three daughters. And I had to think this week, you know, apparently daughters are like, More than twice a blessing than a son, because to be really blessed, you only need three daughters, but you have to have seven sons. So, anyway, he had seven sons and three daughters. That's not technically, theologically accurate, by the way, any of that. And he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So right away in this story, we're told that Job is this this man, this good man, this blameless, upright, God-fearing man who lives out east somewhere in this place called Uz. And I've said before, he was probably friends with the big green wizard from the neighboring country of Oz. Again, not theologically accurate. At some point, we'll get to truth. This story actually begins this way intentionally, and it makes a very, very serious and profound point. Pain and loss and suffering are something that the entire human race, every single person on this planet, are susceptible to. The story begins this way to say, it does not matter where you live. It does not matter how much money you have. It does not even matter how much you love and fear God. This is a fallen, broken world, and all of us, every single one of us will experience sorrow and sadness and loss. However, some, some in our midst will face this in ways that seem absolutely unbearable. Some will encounter grief and loss on a Job-like level. Some in this room have already walked this path. You've lost your closest friend or a parent way too soon, or a spouse, or heaven forbid, even a child. Some have watched a loved one face a debilitating accident or disease. Others have faced that themselves. Some of us have, or are, or will face suffering, grief, and loss in ways that feel absolutely overwhelming and completely unbearable. This week I've spent a lot of time talking to a number of people who have walked through this kind of pain, and as we get into the message, I need to say just a couple of qualifying things. One, no two stories are the same. No two people walking through grief experience or need the same exact things. There are similarities, there are things every single person I talked to said, but this sermon is not a formula. This is not four steps for walking a friend through pain. Instead, this morning, from the experience of Job and others, I want to explore some things I believe God wants us as a church family to consider and be aware of as we become a safe place for people to walk their individual journey of grief and loss. That's the first thing. Here's the second. Every single person I talk to expressed the essential role the church family played in the midst of their struggle. I've talked before about my buddy Jim and his wife uh, Wendy who died about a year and a half ago after a 14-year battle with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma leaving behind their two young teenage boys. Jim is one of my very best friends in the entire world and I was privileged to walk alongside of him down this tough road. One of our Jokes um, for 14 years. One of the things you'll discover about people going through this kind of grief is they need to cry, but they also need to laugh. <laughs> um, one of our jokes for 14 years is that I would ask him. Um, we'd get together for, you know, a hike or to shoot hoops or grab a drink, and I'd say, "How are you?" And, by, and ironically, one of the things I was told this week by m- multiple people was that's the worst question ever. "How are you?" Don't ask that question. And yet, that's what the question I would always ask Jim, because the answer is, of course, not good. Like, I'm, do you know what I'm going through? How are you, are you serious, right? But I, nevertheless, I would ask Jim, how are you? Um, and he would just say, just trying to get off the prayer chain, man. That, and it was kind of this idea like, because he was on our church's prayer chain every single week, and it's a good thing to get prayed for. It is an awesome thing to have a prayer chain and to have multiple people, prayer warrior people praying for you. And yet what Jim discovered was this, if you're on that prayer chain week after week, things have not gone well. How are you, buddy? Just trying to get off the prayer chain. And so I called him this week, and I said, hey, you're off the prayer chain, but unfortunately, you're now on that short list of people who the pastor calls when he's preaching on grief and loss, and so we laughed about that a little bit, and then he shared some wonderful things with me. One of the things he said was this, we would not have made it through that journey. We, my boys and I, could not handle this journey that we're on right now if it weren't for the community of the church surrounding us and walking with us. And I heard that over and over and over again. Church, you really do matter. This is not just a weekly obligation to check your religious box. The things that we do in community together make serious, significant, eternal, spiritual. Differences in the lives of people. Who we are matters in these moments. And so, even though we will not be perfect, we will sometimes get it wrong. We must fight and do everything we can to be the kind of community that Jesus longs for us to be for people who face grief and loss on this level. It matters. All right, back to Job. He's this good man, he's living the good life then all of a sudden, out of the blue, from Job's perspective, out of nowhere, tragedy hits, neighboring armies invade, a fire consumes Job's flocks, a tornado topples one of his homes, and in the span of just 20 short verses, Job loses everything. Most all of his material possessions are gone. He loses his health, and probably most notable to me, his children, all of Job's children are taken from him. In fact, things are so bad for Job that his wife comes to him and says, Job, curse God and die. Job's pain is apparently so overwhelming that his spouse does not even think their lives are worth living. And typically when people talk about this verse and they talk about Job's wife in this story, she is seen as the negative Example: Job's the good guy, she's the bad guy. He's the optimist, she's the pessimist. She is considered most of the time in preaching to be the person whose faith is just not strong enough. I mentioned that I spoke this week with a number of people who have been through loss and one of them is a couple who are new to our church but they uh, I've known them for a number of years now. Bob and Lorna Day, uh, they lost their son Sam just over two years ago to cancer right before his freshman year in high school and Sam was just one of these kids that just so full of life and light and vigor. He just so special. And Lorna spoke with me at length this week. Bob wrote a few things down, but Lorna spoke with me at length, and one of the things she said was this, and I will read it to you because I think this is an area where we as the church must learn to give people freedom. Lorna said, "Be careful not to idolize spiritual strength. It invites a craving for public admiration instead of authentic spiritual journey." A normal and healthy grieving experience often includes spiritual weakness, and spiritual weakness can be profoundly spiritual if we allow it. Too often, people are tempted into public spiritual amazingness because the church likes to admire spirituality in the face of adversity. But a crisis of faith in the face of loss is not always a bad thing. She's right. When tragedy strikes, when unthinkable pain comes, some will respond like Job. Some need to respond like Job, but some will respond like his wife, and God can and God will work in the midst of both. He's not just looking for heroes. And at this point of the story... Well, Job is just barely hanging on. We meet his friends. The three guys that we're going to learn a lot from in this message. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They're really stellar guys. And these guys come rolling in. They are Job's best buddies. Here's what we learn first. It's just Job chapter 2. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance they did not recognize him and they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Friends, here we see what I want to call the power of presence. The writer says that these these three buddies of Job's, they're going to sympathize with him. And the Hebrew word for sympathize actually describes the physical act of sitting with someone and rocking back and forth. Just sitting and rocking. You've seen people do this maybe in times of extreme trauma. They will just sit and they will rock And what's being described here about these friends is that their concern for Job is so great that they will sit next to him and they will take on his pain. They're gonna take on Job's anguish. They're gonna enter into his grief. It says they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word. This was such a tremendous act of compassion that it became a regular practice in Jewish Jewish life. It's referred to as sitting shiva. Maybe you've heard of it before. It literally means sit for seven. And when someone experiences tragedy and loss in the Jewish tradition, friends and family will come to just be with that person for a week. They will just come and just move into the house. And that tradition, that Jewish practice that still goes on today, it comes right out of this story, right out of the book of Job. Now, I need to say this, because one thing I learned about grief this week is it is so very nuanced. Most of the time, doing this, showing up is a real good thing, and sometimes people want and need to be alone. So be sensitive to that and don't take it personally. If they ask you to leave or not, come. It is not about you. Go, make yourself available. And when they ask you to leave or if you sense they need to be alone, make yourself scarce. But in general, this is something I heard over and over and over again from people that I talk to. Your presence often speaks louder than your words don't get me wrong, text messages, cards, food are great, but your presence often speaks louder than your words. I talked to Dave and Louise Avery, who have been part of this church for many years. Dave is on our elder board team here, and uh, they lost their son, JJ, as a young adult years ago. Um, One of the things I love about them is that they share about him with so much tenderness, uh, and they talk about him with so much love. And they talk about this church in the same way. Here's what they wrote to me this week. The day we found, JJ, found out JJ died, the ministers came to the house and were sitting with us and answering the phone. The church community encircled us in prayer, sent meals or sat alongside us for a meal. They cleaned our house and did our wash. So much love was felt. No words, but just their presence. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives the church the same exhortation. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. No coaching, no tips, no explanations. Just your presence and willingness to share in their sorrow. This leads probably to the second most common response I heard from people this week. You can't fix it. So, don't try. You can't fix it, so don't try. And you know what, friends? Those words come with so much freedom. Because often we feel this burden, this need, this responsibility to fix things for people. And guess what? You don't have that responsibility. God has not laid on you the responsibility of fixing something that absolutely cannot be fixed. And that's what we see in Job. These friends, they show up, and for a while, they are so good. They are so patient. They are so loving. They are so with him. They're stellar stellar examples of community. But then things start to change. Because Job's pain and questions and doubts, they aren't going away, not as quickly as the friends would like. In chapter 3, Job says this. Just listen to these words. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. We skip down to verse 25. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. And these words, they didn't ring theologically true with Job's friends, and they could only put up with it for a while. You see, Job is now struggling. Job has now taken his struggle to God. Job is now questioning the Lord. And over the next 28 chapters... He will express a level of bitterness and anger and pain and confusion that is more than just a little honest. And it's this honesty and struggle with God that Job's friends ultimately cannot handle. And so they go into fix-it mode. And they rebuke Job, and they correct Job, and they give Job what they believe are the right spiritual answers. This is Bildad who, as a side note, has no relation to Bill Bow from The Lord of the Rings. Might want to attempt at some humor in this sermon. Uh, it says, Bill Dad. How long will you say such things? This is his response to Job's suffering. How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Friends, this is such an important point in the midst of this topic because when people in our world face extreme loss... Sometimes Christians respond with bad answers. Sometimes we say thoughtless things or spout generic Bible verses at people. Sometimes we spiritualize people's pain in order to make it cleaner or nicer or easier for us to handle. But this is not always what people need. Tim Keller talks about a man named Joseph Bailey who wrote a book some years ago. He and his wife lost three sons one at 18 days after surgery, another at five years to leukemia, and a third 18 years old in a sledding accident. As a result of that loss, Joseph wrote a book called The View from a Hearse. And in one passage he says this, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly He said things I knew were true. I wished he'd go away, and he finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more. He listened when I said something. He answered briefly. He prayed simply. I hated to see him go. Friends, this isn't to say that people don't need or want scripture, or truth, or prayer, or hope-filled statements of faith. Sometimes they do. There are moments and seasons when reminding people that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. is a wonderful and encouraging truth. And there are other times when that can be the most absolutely insensitive thing to say. You see, it's not either or. It's understanding where a person's at. Right now, our dear friend Luis Palau is battling cancer, and, and I've just come to the place where I often, if I don't know what to say or do, just ask people what they need, and what Luis tells me is, I need scripture. Send me scripture. Pray over me scripture. And it's like, all right, for Luis, that's what he needs right now, and that's great, but that may not be what everyone needs. And that may change. And that may change. But friends, I understand the pressure to have answers. I understand how uncomfortable it can be to watch someone question and fight with God in the midst of pain. I understand this, this temptation you feel to want to fix it, to not know what to say, and so just to spout something, to kind of cut the eerie uncomfortableness of the situation. I was talking to my buddy Jim this week, and I said, um, again, this is one of my best friends, so we've... Had a lot of pretty honest conversations. I said, You know what I think would be good to share this week is a time when I didn't do so well at being a friend to you in the midst of your pain. Like I was saying, I'm saying, one thing my church loves is when I share the times when I blow it and I'm a complete failure. In fact, they relish those moments. And unfortunately, the examples just keep coming. But it does keep them coming back, And so I said, "Hey, man, so can you think of a time when I was just like, the worst pastor, the worst buddy, the worst friend?" and just said the stupidest thing that would be great to hear." And um, my buddy Jim, who is one of the, just the gracious, gracious guy very honest but gracious he just said he said, "You're a good friend. You were a good friend. I don't have any examples. It meant a lot to me, but there was this one night um, that I remember, and Jim was too nice to bring it up. (laughs) Um, His wife, Wendy, uh, had been diagnosed again with cancer. She went through multiple, multiple rounds of it coming and going, coming and going, and uh, I shared a little bit about this at the memorial service, Uh, so I'm going to just read a section from what I shared at her memorial service with you in a second, but I was talking about how Wendy was a fighter, how she poured herself into everything she did, how she had this energy and this this spunk. she, when, my, when she and my wife first became friends, uh, they were really close friends, uh, they went to a movie one night, and Amy was just getting to know Wendy at this point, point. Uh, and they were sitting in a the movie theater alone, just these two ladies, and a few rows in front of them was this guy, and he kept kind of turning around and looking at him, and he was kind of creeping him out a little bit, this kind of creepy guy, and he kept turning and looking. This is like before the movie starts, when the lights are still on, and you can see everybody, and this guy just keeps turning and looking, and Amy's was saying that she started feeling comfortable and she was like, should we leave? Like, I'm starting to get weirded out. Maybe we should just go. And all of a sudden, the guy turns around again and Wendy goes, what are you looking at? <laughs> that was just the kind of lady that she was. Um, and she attacked her cancer with the same sort of, sort of uh, fervor. And so I, I, I wrote and shared this at her, at her service. One night in particular, Amy and I had gone over to the McGee's and Wendy had again gotten the dreaded news that her cancer was back. Her boys were very little, and she was not in a good place that night. She was angry, confused, scared, doubting, discouraged, frustrated. And to be honest, she was letting us have it. Letting God have it, really, with both barrels. She was asking me all the hard questions, and try as I might, I did not have the answers, and nothing I said was good enough. At one point, it was like she was taunting me. What kind of pastor are you? Don't you have any answers for me? What do they teach you in that stupid pastor school of yours? And my buddy Jim is just looking at me like, I don't know, man, you're on your own. (laughs) And I remember thinking uh, during those hours, are you allowed to question God like this? argue with God like this, wrestle with God this ferociously? And the answer is yeah. Yeah, you are, and you're not only, I think, allowed to do it, but I believe God invites it, God welcomes it. I think God longs for people who will come to him with the honesty and transparency and vulnerability of a Wendy McGee. You see, for Wendy McGee, faith wasn't just something she claimed to believe. It was real. It was life and death. It was a battle. It was survival. It was everything she could muster to trust God in the face of a struggle and difficulty most of us can't even imagine. Friends, we must be a community where people are given room and space to wrestle with God in their pain. And that's what Job does. He wrestles with God. His comments are all over the map. And that's what you'll find with people experiencing extreme grief. They're often kind of swinging all over the place in different seasons, in different moments, highs, lows. Job says this in chapter 16. Listen to these words. Imagine talking to God like this. Imagine sitting with a friend who isn't just reading, but emotionally saying these things to God and how uncomfortable it might make you. Surely, oh God, you have worn me out, you have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and it has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. His archers surround me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Contrast that with a statement Joke makes just a few chapters later. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You see, Job questions God and he clings to God. He hollers at God and he hollers for God. And he does it all. And it's all swirled together. Again... Bob and Lorna Day talking about their experience. I just want to read a few of the quotes that were just, I think, so profound. Give people permission to grieve the way they need to grieve. Some become angry. Some become spiritual. Pay attention and discern that person's needs. Be brave and patient enough to sit in that dark place with someone. Be a safe place for lament and keep shame at bay learn to sit with unanswered questions answering spiritual questions is not always satisfying sometimes saying it doesn't make any sense or this isn't how god intended for the world to be is more satisfying than asserting a spiritual answer to pain and then here's my favorite quote you don't have to have spiritual conversation to have spiritual impact You don't have to have spiritual conversation. It doesn't take a Bible verse to have spiritual impact. Sometimes a passage of scripture or a prayer is just what's called for. Sometimes just you sitting and listening with the Holy Spirit living in you is all that person needs. And in the book of Job, one of the questions he wrestles with from the beginning is, Why? Why? Why God? Why me? Why would you let this happen? And all throughout, all throughout this entire book, for chapter after chapter after chapter, God is silent. He doesn't speak. He doesn't show up. And friends, this is the author of Job making a very significant point. That is often how people feel in the midst of trauma and pain and grief they often don't hear the voice of god as clearly as they want to but in the end finally god shows up and in, and as you read this book you sort of take this journey with job and by, and you find yourself sort of kind of going come on god Come on, when are you going to show up? When are you going to build this guy out? When are you going to offer him some hope and some life and some answers? When are you going to do it? And so finally when God shows up, you think to yourself, yes, now God will explain himself. Finally, finally Job will get a response. But then that doesn't happen. God never in this book tells Job why. And what this book teaches us is one of the hardest truths about pain and loss. Sometimes It just does not make sense. Sometimes trying to explain why is actually a futile endeavor. So there are no reasons, friends. There are no reasons that can ever make it okay. But God does come to Job and he does offer him something. He doesn't offer him nothing. He doesn't give him all the answers. He doesn't fix it all. He doesn't tie it all up in a nice little bow, but he does offer him two things that I think are extremely important. First of all, God comes and he reveals himself to Job. He shows Job his majesty and his grandeur and the enormousness of his power. And I think what he's telling Job is this. Remember how big I am. Remember my power and majesty. Remember that I am bigger than you can even imagine. That I'm more powerful than you can even conceive. That this pain may feel like it is too big for you, but it is not too big for me. I think he's telling Job, I'm big enough to handle anything this world can throw at you and anything you can throw at me. I can handle your anger and your pain and your doubt and your struggles and your uncertainty. They don't faze me at all because I'm God. And then I think God says, and I need you to know that I see you. I need you to know that I see your struggle, I see your pain, I see your hurt. And you may not understand it, and I may not give you all the answers, but I do see you. You've not been left alone. I know that you have not always felt my presence. I know that you have not always felt like I was there in the midst of this. But I do see see you, and you will feel my presence again. You see, Job, in the midst of all of his grief, longs to know that God has not forgotten him. He longs to see God again. And at the very end of this book, they kind of concluding verse, the thing that Job walks away with, even though he still has lots of unanswered questions, he still has lots of grief and hurt and pain in his life and heart, because some of those things will never go away. He walks away with this, and he says, God, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. It's like Job saying, I didn't know if I can make it through. I didn't know if I can make it through this pain. But maybe now I can. Maybe just knowing that you're with me. Maybe just knowing you, God. Maybe I can just barely make it through. And friends, I think that's what all of us need to make it through this kind of grief and pain and loss, I think it's that all of us need to make it through this life is just to know that our Heavenly Father sees us. And not only that He sees us, but that He relates to us. Not only that He sees our suffering, but that He enters into our suffering. And we remember that, friends, at the table. That we serve a God who didn't stand back, but who entered in, who sent His Son, who hung on a cross, who said, I see your pain. I long to make things right, and so I'm going to enter into your suffering, and I'm going to fix it not right now, not just the way maybe you'd like, but someday, someday I will set things back the way they are supposed to be, friends, and that is the hope that we cling to. That someday God will make things right. But in the midst of that, we often have still the questions of why, still the pain and hard to deal with. And a few years back, Allie's family experienced a terrible loss uh, that they really don't have the answers to and probably never will this side of heaven, but she agreed to share a little bit about her experience and then also a song with us that, that came out of that time of, of tragedy and loss. Thanks, Allie.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, this topic is a personal one for me and probably for all of us. Um, I grew up in Iowa and I had a real tight-knit family. My mom has three sisters, and between the four sisters are 14 cousins, and we were a really close group of cousins and grew up together every holiday. My, um, this story is about my cousin Ben, who uh, is a piano player, was a piano player, and he accompanied me for countless talent shows and weddings and services, and um, was a friend and uh, worship leader at our church, my uncle was a pastor there. My uncle's still a pastor there. My dad was the youth pastor. It was just a real family church um, in my hometown. And um, a few years ago, three years ago in June, Ben and his family were on vacation in Florida. And um, he died with two of his children in a tragic car accident down there. And he was 39. His two kids that died were nine and 11 and um, his wife survived, and their daughter, Kaya, who was seven at the time, survived. Um, And it really, it just, it felt like, uh, I remember, I'm trying to describe how it felt, and the thing that I thought of as I was thinking about this story was the moment at the gravesite, um, singing, seeing my aunt's face, Singing the doxology together as a family, watching Kaya carry the casket of her sister, and just this overwhelming feeling that this is not the way it should be. And um, I I really remember feeling panic, which is a strange emotion, but that's what I remember is is panic because I felt like we had been this family that was this church community, um, worshiping together, doing life together, and I felt like a tornado had come through and knocked down the church building. And there we were in a field, um, deciding whether we were going to keep worshiping God, right, as a family. And uh, I just remember feeling this sense of safety kind of leave, honestly. And um, I, standing there, singing the doxology with my family, uh, which is the song that we also had sang three years earlier when my grandfather passed away, and Ben... My cousin Ben was the one that had played the guitar and sung In Christ Alone in the Doxology at my grandpa's bedside, which was a beautiful passing. And then there we were singing at Ben's um, gravesite, that same song. And it was, and still is, just a really beautiful experience, honestly, to see my family st- continue to stand and continue to worship God together, and it's been a lesson for me and a and I think that will never go away, and my family will never be the same, but um, yeah. I remember the day that it happened, the week that it happened, I just turned on my guitar, which is the way that I process the world, and I kept trying to write songs, and it took me about a year to finally write one um, for the Bartlett's, um, and I've never played it until this morning for people, so it doesn't have a title other than the song for the Bartlett's. Um, But I wanted to just give them that to kind of put some words to what we were all feeling. So I'm going to play it for you today. I remember the quote that really inspired this chorus. Someone said to me, um, that quote that maybe you've heard, it'll be okay in the end. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. And that felt true to me.
0: We just want to give you a little time to respond not just to Allie and her psalm, but to God and the Holy Spirit Whenever whatever he's saying to you this morning. We just invite you to the table to remember where God is in the midst of whatever you're going through. For some of you, it's something big. For others, it's something small. Maybe you're thinking about another person who's going through something. I just want to invite you to bring all that to the table, to this declaration that God sees us and then he sent his son. There's also these frames on the wall that last week, you'll remember, we took this paper that's in the P rack in front of you and we put it in there to kind of symbolize our own brokenness. Maybe maybe today this is about grief for you. There's a place of grief that you just want to say, I don't want to go through it by myself. Maybe it's just a declaration that you're willing to do it in community with people. Maybe it's just a way of saying, I still remember this person. I'm thinking about it. It's a way of praying for a friend. You can write on that paper. You can just pick one that resonates with your heart and soul and just use these frames as a way of just expressing something to the Lord today. Um, and then there's also going to be people willing to pray with you this morning. So it's just kind of a free space. We're going to have a couple more songs. So there's time. If are going to pray with someone around you. You can. We're going to worship and just give you some time to respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you uh, this morning. So I'm going to pray and then Feel free to move about the cabin. Lord, uh, thank you for being God in the midst of all the stuff we face. Thank you for this book of the Bible that's so honest. Thank you for the honesty of it. I Thank you for that. Thank you for not sugarcoating our pain, Lord, but for entering into it. Help us to be the kind of church, Lord, that represents you in the midst of these moments and in the lives of people facing things this big. We pray all these things, Lord, and all the things we don't even know to pray right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.